Welcome to the CSBS podcast, the podcast series of the Center for Social and Behavioral Science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. The purpose of the podcast is to showcase our researchers, give voice to our community, and if we can, have some fun along the way. We are researchers, practitioners, and all-around social and behavioral science nerds. We're glad you're here for the journey. Food insecurity is now recognized as a major health crisis in the United States. This is due to the size of the problem. More than 42 million persons were food insecure in 2015, as well as the many negative health outcomes attributable to food insecurity. In this episode, we'll talk to the University of Illinois professor, Dr. Craig Gunderson, on the measurement causes and consequences of food insecurity. We'll also talk about why solving the issue of food insecurity can be challenging and why programs like SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, can be so effective. We'll also talk about how the COVID-19 epidemic has affected the fight to end food insecurity. Um, so the first question is a, uh, is a background question, and it's a little bit personal. Um, so tell us your story about how you got interested in food insecurity or food security. Um, which, which do you prefer, actually? Do you prefer calling it food security or food insecurity? I usually call it, the way it's usually done is that uh, from analysis, it's, it's a binary, if it's a binary measure, usually food insecurity is the one, and okay. food security is the zero. So usually I call it food insecurity. Okay. How'd you end up in this territory? Tell us your story. So uh, I, I did my undergraduate at University of Notre Dame, and while there, as I was trying to figure out you know, what I wanted to do with my life and what I felt kind of called to do was to do work pertaining to issues of poverty. And so I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do, but the be- math comes fairly well to me. And so I decided to major in economics as a way of uh, addressing issues pertaining to poverty. And then between um, college and graduate school, I did a year of uh, volunteer work at a Catholic worker house in Houston, Texas, uh, Casa Juan Diego. We had a house in Houston and a house over the border in Matamoros for uh, Central American refugees. And then I went from there to get my PhD at University of California, Riverside. And actually my, um, just, and so I, I was interested in issues of poverty. In other words, taking the tools of economics to analyze issues pertaining to poverty. And um, so my dissertation was actually in housing poverty. So I used direct indicators of well-being to measure housing poverty. And at the time, um, USDA was hiring people to work on food security measurement. They were just defining a designing a new measure of food insecurity. And I was hired on at that same time to work on that. So I just pivoted from looking at housing poverty to looking at um, food insecurity, another indicator of well-being. And um, so that's what I have a fairly boring career trajectory. I've been doing the same thing since 1996, just looking at food insecurity and on the evaluation of food assistance programs with an emphasis on SNAP. So that's what that's what I've been doing. So I was at USDA for seven years, and then I was at Iowa State until 2008, and then I was uh, been here since 2008. Well, that's more more interesting than you're letting on. So I mean, you're combining what seems to be um, pro-social aspirations and inspirations, so, uh, addressing poverty with math, which is interesting. Right. Um, and then yeah. something that I, I, you know, as a social scientist, I have to admit, and maybe it's because I'm too siloed and too narrow, but I was introduced to the idea of food insecurity through you. Um, and it's not a common um, idea in many of the other social sciences. 
Um, right. So it's interesting that you would have ended up in that. Was that just serendipity or was it something that you had been eyeing in graduate school and had seen as a possibility for yourself or was it just USDA called and, and you had a new focus? Yeah, no, USDA called is, you know, serendipitous. Um, I mean, it is, uh, you know, so I, um, yeah, and the advantage, I mean, working for the government has pluses and minuses, and the minuses began to outweigh the pluses, that's why I left. But at the time, it really was a good opportunity. Um, no, it's interesting that you mentioned that because there are, you know, fields like psychology and um, some of the other social sciences, it's not well known. I mean, it's well known in economics and ag economics. Um, and in um, nutrition, of course, and public health. But like in psychology and sociology, it hasn't gotten nearly the traction it has in other areas. Interesting. Um, so the, the obvious question, given the introduction here to your career, is how, how do you define food insecurity? How do you measure it since it's something that you've worked on so diligently? Okay. So is that um, the... The idea about food insecurity is there's a set of 18 questions that are posed on something called the core, core food security module um, that the USDA places on the current population survey, CPS. And um, that began in 1996 where they posed these questions, these 18 questions. And the questions range from everything from the most the least severe is I worried whether our food would run out before we had money to buy more. The most severe is did a child ever not eat for a full day in the household. So this is the range of food hardship questions. And then we say a household is food insecure if there's three or more affirmative responses. Um, otherwise the household's uh, food secure. And I can go in, if people want to, I can go into a lot more detail about other subcategories and things like that. But that gives you the general um, flavor of it. Just Two, two other things I always emphasize this. You know, this first of all is that it's a, uh, it's, all the questions are posed with something with respect to lack of resources. So if it's, you know, I don't know, if it's during Ramadan and people are not eating from, the, from sun up to sundown, is that would not be considered a manifestation of a food hardship, but rather it would be a, um, uh, a choice. I mean, if somebody could, it could be during Ramadan when somebody's not eating enough, but it's just because they, they don't have, um, you know, they don't have the, have the resources, but it being wrong that itself wouldn't cause them to say that they're food, uh, experiencing that food hardship. The second thing that I like to emphasize is that it, the hurdle to getting to be food insecure is actually non-trivial. In other words, if somebody responds affirmatively to one or two questions, is they, by the official definition, would be considered to be food secure. So is that, you know, and it's, it's, somewhat arbitrary why it's three or more. I think that with a lot of these measurements, and maybe there's something similar in psychology, I think the government just decided, you know, back in 19, how many people can we have food insecure in our country? I mean, there's really no reason why it should be three or more. It could be five or more, it could be one or more. Uh, so I, there's really no justification for it, which I found you know, pretty interesting. Um, you know, there's other measures like, I mean, to some extent the poverty rate, is some, the poverty line is somewhat similar. I mean, it's based upon some underlying concepts, but I think ultimately a lot of these decisions become, you know, what's the, the amount it should be or something. Yeah. That's interesting because I, 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 having read some of your papers, I, I assume there was some um, rationale behind that. I, I, admit, I have to admit, as a measurement person in another area of social science, I was impressed yeah. 
that you have a um, what you might consider a gold standard, right? You have an accepted measure. And is that the case that, I mean, this 18-item questionnaire is the measure. There isn't another alternative. There isn't the Gunderson measure of food insecurity that's an improvement on it or, or an alternative. There's one measure, and, and the whole field says that's the measure? Right. Yeah. No, and it's worked out great is that, you know, there, you know, as with, well, since you do work on measurement, you can always pick a, anybody can always pick apart a measure and there's different things that I probably would do differently with it. But is that I think that one of the strengths of it is, is with some minor tweaks, it's been the exact same since two, since 1996. So it's become this consistent way. And then in the United States, if you say somebody's food insecure, here was what the food insecurity rate is, is that's what's commonly accepted. Um, and so I, I think that's a major plus. Um, when I spoke at the outset, I mentioned that, you know, it's on the current population survey, which is the official uh, survey that's used to um, derive unemployment rates. And it's also the one that's used um, to derive um, poverty rates. And that's what's the main one it's used on. But it's also on dozens of other surveys, including off-use surveys such as the Anne Haynes. It's on the Anne Haynes. It's on the... Um, uh, well, it's on different versions of it are on the survey of income and program participation SIP. It's on a lot, and it's also on a lot of um, local level surveys um, and other nationally representative surveys. So it's really become the gold standard. In some surveys, there's what's called the six item scale, which has a lot of properties similar to the 18 item. And so that's sometimes used, but the gold standard is the 18 item scale. Um, I've been impressed with the work that you've published linking food insecurity to lots of different important outcomes for social and behavioral scientists, uh, which has led me at times to think that I should include your measure in everything I do. Um, would you recommend that? Well, or? you should. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, so this is, this is the thing. I wish you would. And even if it's just a six item scale. And the reason I say this is that there's actually been surprise. Okay. Over some other dimensions is there's been tons of work done on the relationship between food insecurity and nutrient intakes between a lot of, you know, standard health outcomes where you think that food insecurity may have an impact, whether it be diabetes, whether it be anemia, some of these other things. So there's a lot of, there's been lots of surveys done in, incorporating that, but um, there's been some surveys that have been done using the connection between food insecurity and depression and the causality probably goes both ways. Food insecurity leads to depression, depression leads to food insecurity. But there hasn't been much work done on other psychological or outcomes like that. So I, I, I do hope you use it. I think, I think it really generates some new results because, you know, we don't need another survey to say that food insecurity lead, leads to lower levels of general health. I mean, we could, but I just say at some point, like, ah, yeah, yeah, we know that. Yeah, you know, this coming from somebody every year, a colleague of mine, Jim Zilli, I can write a, a report on food insecurity among seniors. And then we have a health report which says, yep, again, food insecurity is worth, associated with worse health, health outcomes for seniors. I guess it's important to always keep on saying this, but yeah. So, but it'd be good to get some, some, some new insights and some new data sets. Excellent. Yeah, I believe you described your, your area of research as mature, which I, I, Right. Yeah. A nice, nice way of characterizing things yeah. other than other terms that come to mind, like stale. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Old yeah. No, it's a really, it's a, it's a very, it's a well-developed, you know, work. Yeah. I, I, there's enough of a 
research base such that I can, you know, if, if I'm reviewing some papers or something, I'm like, you know, this has been done a lot. You know, then you have to make a judgment about, you know, is this new paper enough of a contribution and stuff. So yeah, it's been interesting. So, okay. Um, so one question, one of the stereotypes, I think that's pretty clear. And, and you, you talk about this in your work is that, um, you might assume that food insecurity is just another indicator of poverty. Right. Um, and it, seems clear from your work that that's the answer to, to that question is no, it's not just um, poverty, which leads to the broader question. What, what are the causes of food insecurity if it's not just poverty? What are the other things in addition to poverty that contribute to somebody experiencing hunger on a day-to-day basis? Okay. So it is, you know, one way to talk about this might be to emphasize some of the, the major determinants of food insecurity. And I'll, I'll talk about it in that context. Um, but first, I'll talk a little bit about poverty is that, I mean, yes, those with lower incomes are more likely to be poor than those with higher incomes. OK, however, is 70 percent of poor households in the United States are food secure. So it's hard being poor in the United States, but still people through assistance programs, through you know, other ways, is they're able to be food secure. So if you tell me somebody's poor, I'll say, well, on average, they're going to be food secure. OK, so. Um, Income is not the only is not the only determinant. And in fact, you know you have to um, have some pretty wide swings in income to actually make differences in terms of somebody's probability of being food insecure. Um, so I, I guess when I've been giving presentations lately, I've been talking about four main areas where we see things that um, the, 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 the food insecurity, some of the determinants of food insecurity. Um, the first is American Indian status, is that I do this work for Feeding America, it's called Map the Meal Gap, which gives county level estimates of food insecurity for the United States. If you look at that map, is you have a state like North Dakota, which overall has really low rates of food insecurity, okay? Then there's these three counties with rates that are some of the highest in the country. Well, those are American Indian reservations. And you see this in Arizona, you see this in Oklahoma, all across the country. So I think that one of, um, are continuing, you know, really um, is um, is to when we're thinking about this is to really continue to talk about the serious challenges facing American Indians. One of which is food insecurity. A second area that I've been uh, talking a lot about is uh, food insecurity amongst African Americans. It's substantially higher than than the rest of the population. Um, and one of the key ways that I've been exploring this is that for Feeding America, we do these county level estimates, but we also do sub county level estimates. And we do it in this case by census tract. And if you draw a scatter plot with the tracks and you put on there is that, you know, the average food insecurity rate and the food insecurity rate 10 percentage points higher. And you have census tracts that are majority African American and census tracts that are majority white. In two cases, two cities with high, high incidences of segregation currently and in the past, Chicago and DC, it's just off the charts, it's just the entire, basically, there's not a, in both those cities, there's not a single non-majority African-American census tract that's above 10 percentage points higher than the average, okay? And then if you look at, there's very few majority African-American census tracts that are below the average, uh, but it's almost all white census tracts. And it's even, it's stark in Chicago, it's stark in DC. Now the good news is in other cities with 
um, which I've had uh, more uh, is like in like in uh, Atlanta or some other cities with a large African-American population. You don't see this, but instead you really see it in like areas with this history of segregation like Chicago and D.C. That's the second thing that I think that we need to talk more about, especially in terms of, you know, whether we talk about it as an African-American issue generally or as an African-American issue in really segregated cities. I, uh, I don't know how best to talk about it. But anyway, that's the second thing. The third thing is, is about the importance of food prices. As people always talk about income as being a key determinant of food insecurity, but you know, like from an economics perspective, it's the amount of money that I have to afford things depends upon my nominal income, but it also depends upon the prices that I face. And so for, uh, well, for us professors, it doesn't make any difference what the price of food is. I mean, we're gonna, it doesn't really influence our choices that much. But for low income households, you know, having to make a decision I mean, if food prices rise by like 5%, that's a big deal. So is, and what you can see also in our math and meal gap work is we do the differences in prices across the country. I mean, if you're going to be poor, you don't want to be poor in New York City. You don't want to be poor in San Francisco. The prices are sky high, not to mention housing, but food. I mean, anyway, this is another key determinant of it. The fourth thing, I mean, I could go on for the full two hours, not two hours, but talking about the determinants. But the fourth thing I want to say, and this is probably the one that I think is most important, is the critical, compo- uh, the critical um, importance of disability status. Okay? Persons with disabilities, whether it be a parent or a child, have some of the far and away the highest food insecurity rates in our country, even after controlling for other factors. In fact, it's higher, I mean, it, in other words, if you wanna know if somebody is food insecure in the United States, find out if somebody in the household has them with a disability. That's the best predictor of it. Um, it hasn't generated nearly the attention that other things have um, generated and think other things that have actually less of an impact. So I really hope that we can talk more about, well, just in a general sense, I hope that this is raised more and given the you know, historic strengths of our campus on issues pertaining to disability, I think it's something that I wish University of Illinois would talk, not that people aren't talking about it, but it's something where I think that University of Illinois could really make a nice, contra, uh, a nice contribution to this. I should note that a lot of it is that persons with physical disabilities are more likely, but the main determinant is those with uh, Mental, mental health disabilities. That's the main factor that we see in terms of this. So in other words, talking about those four determinants is the area where I think we need the most research out of those four, not to diminish the importance of the other three is we need a lot more research on why disability has such a big influence on food insecurity and what we can do about it. Do you have any um, ideas, especially with that latter uh, um, issue, which is fascinating to me, that it's particularly those who suffer from mental health issues that are suffering disproportionately. Are there certain yeah. features of that population that they don't receive the benefits, um, or is it that they are um, somehow not uh, as willing or able to engage the system um, as other groups? What, what, what kind of ideas do you have for explaining why that group in particular is suffering more? Yeah, so I don't, you know, this is uh, this is a, a question I wish I knew the because so here's here's what I usually say about I think that for a lot of people with mental health challenges is in some cases it's you know could be uh, depression or could be you know schizophrenia or something like that that really 
And I think if somebody's facing those sorts of things, the idea of managing a daily budget to purchase food and other necessities, I think can be a pretty big hurdle to a lot of people. I'm getting, you know, this just seems to be the case. And for those with, you know, learning disabilities and stuff, I think that, you know, a lot of them are able to live on their own, but in many cases, it may be hard for them to manage a lot of these processes to coming back to what you're saying. I think that's the first part of it for individuals in that case. I also think that a lot of cases is that, you know, you know, God bless the parents who are taking care of children with special needs. I mean, it's so, it's so time consuming to care for those children. And oftentimes it means they can't be in the labor market as much as they might like or be have to for their family. So that's another area where um, you see a lot of these, a lot of these challenges in terms. So I think that, I guess what I would say is throughout our conversation is, is my usual default is increased SNAP. And I would actually think that maybe we could begin to think about that, you know, like if, you know, because a lot of these families don't qualify for SSI, their income is high enough, they don't qualify. And so they have children with disabilities. So maybe having some sort of more SNAP benefits for those, um, you know, maybe trying to figure out, um, you know, uh, different ways to, for people with, you know, mental health challenges is to figure out a way to make shopping easier for them, you know, and maybe like, I don't know, maybe like this online shopping is a much better way for people to go. I mean, and so I, I don't know. I don't have a lot of good solutions to that. This is part of the reason why, you know, in other cases, I think we have a good handle on what to do. I don't think we have a good handle on what to do in terms of um, alleviating food insecurity amongst persons with disabilities. So I hope that others will take up this research area. Okay, I want to get to um, SNAP and some of the solutions to the issue. Um, but first I wanted to go back uh, to, some of the cultural and subcultural differences that you identified. And so, um, so it's not being African-American based on your uh, description, right? It was, it's being African-American in Chicago or in DC. Uh, it, what's the reason? Is it because there are food deserts in Chicago and they're not in Atlanta um, in the African-American community? Or is there some other cultural factor? Is, is poverty more concentrated? What are the, what are the reasons why you see those Differences. This is also a question that could be asked of the American Indian populations too. Right. Why is it such a, a, a rampant issue for those populations in the U.S.? You know, I I don't know enough about you know the history of segregation or some of these issues as it pertains to Chicago and D.C. or Boston or some of these other places to understand why this is the case. But the the, the distinction I make is between um, so. Um, you know, if you compare Prince George's County, which is a county right outside of D.C., okay, um, and it's predominantly African-American, and you compare that to Washington, D.C., which used to be predominantly African-American, no longer is, is that the difference is, is that in Prince George's County, the average food insecurity rate is a little bit higher, but you don't have this wide variation in terms of food insecurity rates. It's a lot more concentrated than in somewhere like D.C. And I think that trying to figure out why this is, I would imagine that a, a lot of it is that, you know, African-Americans now is there's almost a reverse migration, in, in some cases, to the south. I feel going back to Atlanta. I mean, it's a booming area for African-Americans. It always has been. But, you know, more and more people moving south. And I wonder if – sometimes my thinking on this is that – it's the same that we see in migration in other contexts. Maybe African-Americans who are, you know, in some sense doing better are able to go to some of these other places, whereas those who aren't maybe are, you know, stuck in 
I just suck is too strong a word. Maybe for familial reasons or something else are in a particular location. I mean, we could draw an analogy with um, Appalachia, okay, which is predominantly poor white. Oh, not, not, it's a lot of poor white here. You see the same thing there. A lot of people who just have been there for generations and they're not going to some of these more vibrant areas. And I think that there could be some comparisons there. So I think that that's, I, I don't know the answer to this, but this is why when sometimes when we talk about these things is I like the way you put it, it may not be overall African-Americans are disadvantaged. It could be just particular locations where African-Americans are disadvantaged. And I think that's probably a more effective way to look at it, especially since I think that too often and this happens in, I don't know if this happens in psychology or in other uh, arenas, but oftentimes is uh, all minority groups are lumped together and talked about one of the same. And it's just not the case with food insecurity. For example, Latinos, all else equal, generally oftentimes have lower rates of food insecurity than non-Latinos. And it's in part because of, you know, for a lot, in a lot of cases, of course, the Latino population is extraordinarily heterogeneous. But a lot of people, a lot of Latinos, if they're going to come, let's say, to the United States, they're not moving to Harlan, Kentucky. You know, they're moving to Dallas. They're moving to Houston. They're moving to areas where there's lots of job availability. Okay, and there are there are definitely are. So, for, I'll give an example that I always give is along the Rio Bravo, is that you know there's Mexican American communities that have been there well since Texas was Mexico. And you see there that the challenges are very different and they, they look more like Appalachia in some sense. You know, people have been there for generations, but you don't find a lot of, you know, Mexican or you know, recent immigrants moving to, to those areas. And they might, but, you know, it's, it's different. So in other words is I think that in thinking about a lot of these issues is we really have to parse some of these things out. I would imagine every social science field has a similar similar situations, but it always kind of frustrates me when people say, oh, you know, underrepresented minorities have higher rates of food insecurity. Well, some do in some contexts, but others don't. And so, so anyway, that's something worth, worth talking about. And part of the reason I say this is I think that we need to concentrate on areas where we have serious issues. Like, for example, coming back to this disability issue is that the disability, you know, knowing that somebody's African-American tells you something especially if you know where he or she lives about their probability of food insecurity status, the more important thing to know is whether or not somebody in that household has a disability. And there, the rates are, the rates amongst African-Americans with a disability are substantially higher than the rates amongst whites with a disability. So in other words, all these things are coming together. And I don't know how best to talk about some of these things, but I think that, uh, you know, the, the, coming back to your words, Brent, this is a mature enough field that we can begin to say, you know, here's some nuances that we need to look at moving forward. Interesting. I, I, I can't help but disparage my own um, field by saying that the only population we're interested in are college undergraduates. So we do it. <laughs> That's right. Studying that needy population of 19 year olds. That's that right. Our, our intro <laughs> site class. Um, uh, sorry. <laughs> I'll stand. I'll stand by that statement. Um, so obviously, this is a pressing issue for um, all societies, especially for the United States. Uh, there are solutions, and uh, you have described a number of them. Um, in your mind, what are the best tools? What are the tools we have, and then what are the best tools we ha might have um, to address food insecurity? So I think, fortunately, is that. There's lots of issues in our country and elsewhere that there's probably no easy solution to. 
you can all think of things that you know, there's not an easy a vaccine for COVID-19. There's all different things and there's not easy solutions to. But for food insecurity, the solution is actually remarkably easy is that if we were to tomorrow is that if we were to expand a, the amount of SNAP benefits that people are getting and B expand the eligibility for SNAP, we could reduce food insecurity rates in our country by, I don't know, it depends, it's how it's depending upon the year and everything by 40 to 50% at a cost of roughly, I don't know, $45 billion is what our estimates show. To me, that's a bargain. I mean, so in other words, if you're going to spend 40, if you want to reduce food insecurity, to me, at least spending $45 billion to reduce food insecurity in our country by 40 to 50%, that would be worth it to me. Now, some people may say, eh, it's not worth it. We can differ about whether or not that's, that's worth it. But, 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 but I do think that it, that, and therefore the solution is pretty easy. Um, and we already have, and we know SNAP works. We might as well use a tool that already exists and, and works really well and just to, to expand that out. Um, I really don't, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a uh, you know, one-note academic. I just, I, I always come back to SNAP and that really it would um, go a long ways to reduce it. I mean, I have other things on the supply side that I think could help reduce food insecurity, like I mentioned before, keeping food prices low. Um, you know, through different, through different methods that we can use um, and things like that, or, you know, having um, even things like, for example, during the summertime is we have higher rates of food insecurity. Okay. Well, one way to get around that problem because kids aren't in school was to give families extra, extra SNAP or some SNAP benefits over the summertime. And there's been studies that have been doing that. I'm involved in some other projects. That'd be an easy solution. You're using SNAP as a mechanism. I mean, there's other things that, you know, are, you know, more tricky. So one thing I didn't come back before, but you know, for various reasons, we're, we're incarcerating too many people in our country. And one of the consequences of incarceration is the food insecurity. Now, and this is one of these cases where it wasn't clear a priority what the impact would be. You know, on the other hand, not, <laughs> there's lots of bad people who are incarcerated and maybe getting some of those people out of the households was a good idea. But on average, what you see is that whenever you increase incarceration is that it leads to higher rates of food insecurity. So that'd be something that's not pertaining to SNAP. But, you know, I, in the main is I think almost every problem can be, um, in terms of food insecurity, can be addressed, um, addressed by expanding SNAP. So uh, we should probably define SNAP for those listeners who don't know what SNAP is. Um, so yeah. in your own words, what is SNAP? Okay, SNAP, yeah, that's right, we kind of jumped right to the end. No, well, I just kind of jumped to the end. I could have described it first, but I didn't. It's your fault. Okay, SNAP, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, is SNAP is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Uh, it uh, go, goes by its uh, abbreviation SNAP. Different states, it has different nicknames. So, for example, in California, it's known as CalFresh. In Illinois, sometimes people refer to it as Link. Um, but the, the, main, the, the nationally recognized name is SNAP. It used to be called the Food Stamp Program. So until about 2008, it was known as the Food Stamp Program. And the way it works is that um, every, um, every month is uh, people will get a certain amount of SNAP benefits put onto an electronic benefit transfer card, which is like a debit card, except that if I was on SNAP and I went to the food store, I'd swipe the card and it would deduct 
the amount of money that I was spending on food from that card. So this is the way um, you know the SNAP works, and each month is when if somebody's still eligible and on the program, they continue to get uh, benefits through that through that through that uh, method. Um, just another some other facts about SNAP that I think would be relevant for this is that. The program, you know, during bad economic times, like during the last Great Recession, is it was an $80 billion a year program, okay? It's designed, it's really the only, it's the largest assistance, well, it's the largest near cash assistance program in the United States. And it's an entitlement program insofar as whenever SNAP needs to expand, it automatically expands. It doesn't require the administration or Congress to give it more money. It automatically expands. So it's, in that sense, it's an entitlement program. That's one positive feature of it. So another thing is, it's, as I've articulated before, is I think it should be a more generous program. But it is a pretty generous program. At the maximum, for a family of four, it gives families $8,400 a year to spend on food, which is a non-trivial amount of money. So I want to emphasize that. Um, another thing that I want to emphasize is, as a whole, the federal budget, this is a tiny proportion, but it is a big part of the USDA's budget. So it's about 80% of the USDA's budget. Uh, people always think about USDA as being a farm program, and it is, but it's mainly in a food assistance program uh, department. And so that would be one, you know, one thing to think about in terms of this context. Um, and finally, one nice thing about SNAP is, and something I, I love about SNAP is that it allows people, it gives people dignity and autonomy. It, if I'm a SNAP recipient, it means I can go to the you know, local Walmart, Meyer, County Market, Harvest Market, wherever people want to shop, and just use your card, and then you go to the same places to shop as everybody else does. And I really like that about it, insofar as it's not saying, okay, you know, you have to buy a house in a particular area, or you can only get medical care through this particular thing. No, you can go wherever you want. And it gives people the freedom to make decisions that they feel are best for their family. So that's one of my um, favorite components of SNAP. Um, for those of you who are interested is, is uh, one area that I've been writing a lot about recently is the right to food and how SNAP ensures that, right, even though there's no officially defined right to food in the United States, is in many ways SNAP um, does achieve this. And if you are interested, um, if, we are, if you are interested in that, I've written a paper about it from a secular perspective that came out of the American Journal of Agriculture Economics. And also I, I'm Catholic and I do a research on other things on Catholic social teaching, and I have a paper that came out in this uh, Catholic Economist newsletter about the Catholic notion of a right to food and how SNAP fulfills on it. If I could put in a plug for this, it'd be neat. What I really want to do is at some point have a panel. Maybe you could, maybe some, maybe CSBS could sponsor this, like about a whole bunch of people talking from religious, different religious perspectives on the right to food and how different things work. So, but I see that we're supposed to um, now talk about COVID-19. No, no, we're getting there. We can cut things. Okay. <laughs> okay. We, okay. Have, we, have, we have different agendas. I, 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 yeah. Yeah, I tolerate um, longer conversations. Um, so okay. I, I can't help. Sorry, I don't want to leave this one um, question in one position, um, which is 40. You said that SNAP could be improved markedly with a, what is, of course, a lot of money from a personal perspective, but not a lot of money from a federal government perspective, $40 right. billion which seems to me to say that this is kind of a no-brainer. Um, you, know, you said it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a simple thing, but not easy. This seems easy. Um, right. Why, yeah. why, why, I mean, it seems both simple and easy, you know, improve SNAP. What's the barrier to 
convincing people to invest more in SNAP if, if it's so straightforward? What, I mean, what are we, why are we not um, saying that, you know, something close to everybody has a right to get food so that right. they don't go hungry and we could do it very easily with a very low investment. Um, why is that not happening? Uh, okay. So I think it's for, for, for two main reasons is historically SNAP has had a lot of bipartisan support. And this is part of the reason it's been successful is that I always say, you know, even, even to the Trump, we could talk about the Trump administration in this context of what's going on now is the Trump administration has done some bad stuff for SNAP, but today they came out with one of the best proposals I've heard in years for SNAP. And we could talk about that. And same under Obama. Obama did some good stuff for SNAP. He did some really bad stuff for SNAP. Under the second Bush is he made it easier for people to get on the program. He didn't expand it or anything. So in other words, historically, both Republicans and Democrats have done good stuff and bad stuff. The problem is, is that I think part of the reason why we don't move more forward with expanding SNAP is for, for, for two reasons. First of all, from the right is it's oftentimes perceived as SNAP as being this program that makes people discourage work, um, which nothing can be further from the truth. A lot of other welfare programs do discourage work. SNAP doesn't. And also that it's a program, you know, rife with fraud and abuse, which also is false. I mean, it's the IRS could learn a lot from the USDA about how to successfully run a program. From the left, and maybe this, is, this isn't all the left, but it is part of the left, um, is that there's in the public health community, um, uh, so in the public health community, there's a lot of people who love telling poor people what they can and can't do with their lives, a really condescending and patronizing attitude. And a lot of people in the public health and to a lesser extent in the nutrition community don't like the fact that SNAP lets people make their own choices in terms of food. They would rather be able to tell everybody what they can and can't eat at every juncture in people's lives. You know, to me, I mean, from my perspective is we owe, you know, I, I truly, truly believe in a right to food is that we do need to, we do need to help out poor persons, but that doesn't mean that, you know, people like myself or not myself, though, nobody's going to look into me for nutrition advice, but whoever it might be is to be telling other people how they should lead their lives. And so I think that from the left's perspective of that particular type of public health, and then from the right's perspective, again, it's not all those on the right. I mean, I think, you know, libertarians, so for example, who are in favor of universal basic income, in many ways, SNAP is like a universal basic income program. So in other words, it's not all right and left, but I think that there's not enough people who are excited about it as I am. I mean, I, you know, I always, whenever I get presentations, I'm always very clear. You know, I'm not being, I'm probably not objective about, it. I love SNAP. I just think it's an incredible program. There's lots of government programs that I think are pretty, pretty bad and not particularly successful, but SNAP's not one of them. SNAP's great. Thanks. That's a great answer. Um, let, let's uh, pivot to the, the obvious uh, concern for most of us right now. We're about a month in to the COVID experience, at least a month into the uh, shelter-in-place call for our state. Um, this has been a tremendous challenge for many people, especially people who are let go from their jobs. And the obvious question in this case is what kind of effect is COVID-19 and, and the policies we put in place to try to um, control it as much as we can affecting food insecurity? Right. So, um Okay, so I'll start from where what, we, what we've been doing. Um, so as I mentioned before, I do work with Feeding America on this Map the Meal Gap Project. And 
the way we estimate map to meal gap is actually through um, various determinants. Um, two of the determinants are the unemployment and poverty rate. So what we've been doing is we've been doing projections about what might happen to um, the food insecurity rate. And um, recently is that the, the Wall Street Journal um, has this panel of experts about what they think is going to happen to the unemployment rate, GDP growth, and things like this. And then they reach, you know, a, not really a consensus. I mean, they don't come together and reach a consensus, but if you actually look at their projections, is they kind of come around a, a similar um, a, amount. And what they found was that the increase in the unemployment rate over the next year is likely to be about seven, about seven to eight percentage points higher. So in other words, it's going to get up to 10 or 11 percentage points on average throughout the year. That's a huge increase. That's a huge increase. And so what we do is in our map to meal gap models is because some of the other things in our models like disability status, like percent African-American, some of these other things are unlikely to change due to the COVID um, is we just estimate what happens with unemployment and then the, the usual relationship between unemployment and poverty. And what we find is that there'll be, we project that there'll be about 17 million more, Amer 17 million more Americans who will be food insecure in 2020 in comparison to last year, which is a huge increase. I mean, there's currently about 38 million. So you're getting, you know, almost a 45% increase in the number of food insecure people in our country. So it's a big deal. Uh, so that's our, that's our, projection as to what we think will happen over the, the next year, um, you know, under what seems to be, you know, a standard set of assumptions about what's going to happen to the macroeconomy. You know, if, if things are better than, well, let's hope that things are better, it's going to be less than 17%, um, 17 million more, but, you know, who knows? Um, so that, that's our projection for it. For various reasons, I'm actually optimistic that it's not going to be as bad. But, okay. I think that COVID is, it's going to be bad for any number of reasons, but in terms of food insecurity, my hope is that, um, is that maybe there's some mitigating factors that mean that it won't be as bad. Um, and there's a few things I say about that. The, the first thing is, is that I think that, you know, the fact that these $1,200 checks were sent out to people pretty quickly was a good idea. I mean, I think that, you know, the Congress and the administration coming together, the stimulus package, I think, I think will help out a lot. Second thing is, is the, um, the fact that, um, you know, unemployment benefits seem to be a larger and B for a longer time period. I think that's going to help out a lot. And it seems like that's going to go through relatively quickly. So in other words is in our models is we were presuming that, there wasn't a stimulus package to some extent. We're just presuming that things were as they were. So I think that hope, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that these things really help out a lot. That's my hope. That'll be this. But the third thing is, is, and then I, I don't want to sound like, you know, that I'm praising the Trump administration. I've been critical of the Trump administration about their, some, about them imposing work requirements. I've been critical of, uh, for, in terms of SNAP, that's just critical. I've been critical of them in terms of imposing work requirements, and I've also been critical of the Trump administration for uh, removing states' ability to set higher uh, gross income thresholds for the program. But I do want, you know, in a case where I think it's good to say something nice about it, is what they announced today is that everybody on SNAP, they're going to now get the maximum benefit level. 
for, and so this is huge. I mean, currently, um, a lot of people who became recently eligible for SNAP maybe qualify for, let's say, a family of four, a hundred dollars a month. Under this new policy, they're going to get seven hundred dollars a month. So I think it's, I mean, this is a big, big deal, and I think that you're going to get a lot of other people coming on to the program who will. You know, they may be like, look, I'm only going to get 50 bucks. I'm not going to go on the program, but they're going to get 70 bucks. Now, this is just temporary. Um, and for various reasons, I think it should be temporary. If I was to expand the program, I would do it in a different way. But um, so for those three reasons, you know, I'm, I don't know. I, optimistic is too strong, probably too strong a word. But I, I, I hope our projections of 17, mil, 17 million more uh, food insecure Americans ends up being an overstatement. Um, this may be outside of your defined area of expertise, but it's salient given what we see on the press. Um, the food supply itself uh, seems to be, let's say, at risk. We see, first of all, of all these um, pictures of farmers dumping milk and vegetables in the field because they can't supply restaurants which and schools, which were the, the main um, clients before this. And it seems... Uh, troubling might be a very soft way of putting it, that we have people who are food insecure and we can't figure out a way to get them food that would have gone to institutions that would have fed them through something like a school lunch program. And that food is lost. Um, we also see, of course, uh, things like meat packing plants being uh, ground zero for lots of COVID outbreaks and then being shut down with that risking, of course, other aspects of the food supply. Uh, are, should we be worried about the food supply providing another factor that's not in your model, um, contributing to food insecurity, not only for people who are poor and already on SNAP, but maybe people from other socioeconomic strata? Yeah. So, right. So I, I haven't talked about this yet, but I, so, so this, therefore, I'm glad, really glad you brought this up, Brent, is in fact, I was just having some, I've been having conversations the past few days. So like I mentioned before, is we're doing some work, with, I do some work with, with Feeding America to look at, um, to look at, you know, these projections of uh, food, <laughs> of food insecurity. And um, is that um, the other thing is, is a critical to Feeding America is a supply issue. Like, What's, I mean, when we made these projections about what's going to happen to charitable demand, and I should, I should note is that, you know, I, I love Feeding America as much as I do SNAP. Feeding America is just an incredible organization. It's the umbrella organization for food banks in the United States. Here in our local area, it's the Eastern Illinois Food Bank. Um, so is that I'm a huge fan of Feeding America, but what we're trying to figure out now is what's going to happen to Feeding America's ability to, you know, feed uh, people in need across our country. I don't know if you saw yesterday on the front page of the uh, Wall Street Journal, there was a picture of a food bank where they were giving away one week's worth of food. And they just had, I think that was only the first 800 cars that were there. I mean, just cars, just a huge lineup. So in other words, Feed America has to react to this. And so in our models is we were thinking about, you know, in general is that there haven't been many food price increases over the past, 10 years. I mean, it's about the rate of inflation. So in some senses that whenever Feed in America or another institution had to ramp up uh, their supplies, prices didn't, they didn't have to pay that much more for it. I mean, to think about it this way, you know, it's a, a very elastic supply curve for food. But one concern is in terms of Feed in America is the fact that A, because a lot of people are going to food stores a lot more, that some of the food that used to be donated by retailers is no longer 
going to, to food banks. But another issue along these lines is Feed America already, you know, they do have to purchase a lot of food through different things. And will the price of that food that they're, that they're having to pay go up? That's a big issue and something we need to really think carefully about because Feed America is oftentimes, A, it's for those who staff is not enough, is they go to food banks at the end of the, the food pantries at the end of the month to get enough food. And B, there's can be a lot of people who aren't eligible for SNAP that they really have nowhere else to turn to but Feeding America's uh, network of food banks. So for those two groups, um, if Feed America can't help them, that's going to be a huge deal. So it's really critical. I'm talking about there in the context of Feed America. But let me c- come to the broader issue of food prices is, you know, if, uh, if our model assumes in essence, that there won't be any increases in, in food prices because that's what it's been for the past 10 years. But if food prices rise, suppose that one thing that happens if food prices rise by, let's say, 5% or, heaven forbid, 10%, that's going to have a huge, huge impact. So, you know, uh, we have an incredible ag supply chain in the United States, um, well, for globally in a lot of countries too. But, um, yeah. I'm concerned if something broke down there is a lot of people are talking about people losing their jobs. We should be talking about that. But in terms of food insecurity is disruptions to the ag supply chain. And there's you know, different things that can be done to make sure it doesn't get too disruptive. Like I was reading this nice article about how a lot of food that goes to restaurants, it's oftentimes difficult to redirect it to grocery stores because you need to have nutrition labeling. Well, it seems to me that right now nutrition labeling is not the most important thing that we should have. I mean, if you have some extra, you know, meat somewhere and you can bring it over to a grocery store, that seems like a wise thing to do. <clears throat> you know, regulations may or may not be good in other contexts, but in this context, it doesn't seem to make much sense. <clears throat> Interesting. Um, I, I, I want to indulge a couple of questions that are um, related to some of these topics that we didn't touch upon so far. Um, one is about uh, the charitable organization. So you, you um, are quite pro on Feeding America. Um, and that, that's another layer of support that addresses food insecurity. I'd just like you to expand on what role they play, how important they are, how large is that comparatively speaking to something like SNAP. Some people will say, oh, we should rely on charitable organizations to feed people and not do something like SNAP. Um, is that really something that could be done? Um, how, how important are these organizations? What, what are the other organizations other than Feeding America that might be playing a role in people's communities? Um, how can people help these, these entities out too? So here's, okay, so I'll explain why um, I'll get to each of your questions. So first of all, as I mentioned before, is it the reason why Feeding America is successful? Because it's the last gasp for many families. It's the last ditch thing that they can go to. Um, and so let me talk about why Feeding America is successful at this. And the first thing is, I mean, you know, SNAP is great, but it takes oftentimes a long time for things to change in some of these programs. Feeding America can be a lot more nimble in terms of bringing food into, you know, the food, the network of food banks. I'm saying feeding America, but what I really mean are the food banks that are running things um, uh, on the ground. So they can be a lot more nimble in terms of responding to, to need as it manifests itself. Um, the one reason though, why feeding America and its network of food banks works so well and can be so nimble is because they know that there is SNAP available, okay? If we took away SNAP tomorrow, I mean, it would be devastating. It would be absolutely devastating to our country. And anybody who says, well, the charitable food network can step in, that's just completely false. 
I mean, you know, SNAP is roughly, depending upon how you define these things, roughly 20 times bigger than feeding America, feeding America in terms of total size, the different ways you could measure it. But no, is, and this is part of the reason why Feeding America has been at the forefront of supporting SNAP in our country, is they definitely don't see them, they see them as compliments rather than um, substitutes. And if we got rid of SNAP, that would greatly impinge on the ability of Feeding America to do its incredible work. Interesting. Thanks for answering that. Um, the, the last question is, is uh, sorry, a psychological one. Um, I'm old <laughs> enough uh, to have lived through the time when it was called food stamps and also um, was aware enough at that time to notice that it was a source of shame to you know, receive food stamps and to be seen using food stamps in stores. And um, there still seems to be this uh, sanctioning against people to receive aid like this, even though it's so critical to their basic survival. What do we do to, let's say, um, diminish or alleviate some of that um, guilt and shame that seems to be built into that system? Because it seems to me that sometimes people will forego these types of benefits out of pride, which for especially growing children would be a foolish thing to do. But you know, pride is a really strong motivator um, from a psychological perspective. Um, what can we do to diminish the stigma that's attached to something like SNAP or food stamps? Yeah, no, I... So, okay, let, let me talk about this from a few different perspectives. Well, I would say that, I think, for every question. I have a few different perspectives. But at any rate, is, I'm going to mention this. Is The first is that back to this whole thing about people being judged. I mean, there's a, for both the left and the right, they like to be judgmental about, about poor people. I mean, I get sick. I, I can't, you know, well, we're out thanks. Well, I'm not sure how much you all hang out with other people, but sometimes you hear people say, Oh, I was very little. Not, nowadays we don't hang out with anybody. It's just my dog. Okay. That's right. Um, you know, you know, you're <laughs> somewhere and somebody's like, yeah, I was at the supermarket the other day and somebody was using step benefits and they had a fancier iPhone than I, and I'm like, you don't know anything about that person and what their experience is. And so I just hate it when people say that or like, Oh, then I saw them drive off in a fancy car. I was like, well, Hey, why are you spending so much? Just pay attention to yourself. It doesn't make any difference when anybody else does. The second that bothers me is when people are making judgments about people are purchasing. They're like, oh, you're, how, how, this person was in front of me and they were buying, you know, I don't know, Cokers. I mean, or they were buying, you know, chips, white so bread or something. I have yeah. no idea what it would be, but always judgmental about this. And so I hate to see this. Now, as you note, is that um, it used to be a lot worse because people had to bring these coupons out and then they had to split it. So everybody in line knew that they were getting SNAP. Now, now what it is, is, you know, you just have to have your card. And so therefore the, you know, the person at the, the checkout counter is able to observe whether or not you're on SNAP and maybe somebody behind you um, may be able to notice this. Um, and so it's much better. That stigma has been greatly, re greatly reduced. Um, if I had my druthers in our country is, I mean, given that how much I love snap is, if somebody in front of me, sometimes I can tell, you know, I know what the card looks like. I'm like, I'm happy that I live in a country where we're giving people these benefits. We should be proud as Americans that we have this social safety net against hunger in our country. It should fill us all up with pride. It should fill us up with pride because we're doing stuff to help out the others. We should also fill us up with pride because we know if we fall into hard times that there's something there for us. So I, I, I really wish that we could get rid of some of this stigma. I, and I don't know how to do it. I mean, I think 
making more of the cases, you know, this is a social safety net program that benefits, you know, tens of millions of people at some point over the course of their lives. And maybe we can have like some more ads that talk about, you know, all the people that are, that relied on SNAP at some points in their lives. I mean, the classic example I always bring up is LeBron James. LeBron James grew up very poor. In fact, he was homeless for a long time. He was homeless for time periods when he was a child. I would imagine his family did receive SNAP. And why can't we talk about, and there's plenty of other people, probably a lot of people, I'm sure there's a lot of people in academia who has this. So people could just say, look, this was important for me at critical junctures in my life and have TV ads about these things. I mean, I, but then again, I'm not very imaginative. That's just what, what I think of something that we could do, but any way that we can make snap the pride and joy something that's as fundamental to our country as apple pie and really make it important. I, I think that'd be great if we could do something like that. So we'll see. And, and maybe, you know, maybe, maybe again, I'm always trying to look on the bright side. Maybe, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who are because of COVID-19 who never re received snap pre previously and may now be receiving it. And some of those people maybe were the ones that the Thanksgiving dinner table complained about somebody who was using snap improperly or, you know, whatever it might be. <laughs> And so maybe this will change people's mind. Maybe like, you know, SNAP was there when I needed it and nothing else was there for me. I mean, well, other things were there for them, but I mean, just maybe this will change. Maybe, maybe it will become uh, well-loved in our country. Speaking as a social scientist, I'd like to propose that we probably should do something out of the pandemics to change people's attitudes. I prefer <laughs> something yeah, 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 yeah. smaller in magnitude personally, but... <laughs> To say the least, um, but, yeah, I, I, that, the, I really like the the way you put that. That the the fact that we as a populace should be proud and um, retain the dignity of the process because we're pulling for each other and pulling each other up. That's a nice idea. Yeah. Okay, um, uh, that is our set of questions. Um, Great. Thank you for your, your answers, um, yeah. and they were uh, stimulating and fascinating. Um, do you have any other closing comments you'd like to make? No, just that I really appreciate you, you taking the time to talk about what you used to say I think is really a critically important issue, especially in this time of COVID. But even after COVID, even before COVID, this is a critically important issue. And just keep, uh, so I appreciate you talking to me. And to conclude, SNAP is great. <laughs> Thanks, Craig. Okay, okay. We okay. appreciate your Thank work you. On this too. <laughs> okay. See you Take all care. later. Okay. Take bye bye. Bye bye. bye, -bye.